politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, Forgotten American Patriots, the one and only Conservative Review podcast. This is Daniel Horowitz in the house, your only source of independent conservative news. Now, we have a very special show today on this April 21st. Uh, a real time for patriots to rise up where it looks like our voices are finally, slowly, but finally being heard. I want you guys to go to our YouTube page, Conservative Review YouTube page. This is a special episode that will be streamed on our YouTube page, so you will see the video component in addition to how you watch this every day, iTunes, Stitcher, uh, our Blaze platform, however you watch it or hear it, you could watch it as well. Also, I need you guys to go to blazetv.com forward slash CR, issue promo code Daniel, and get $69 a year for an entire year subscription to all of our content. This is really the only platform where you will get the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. All right, guys. So last night was a busy night. We had the news that the North Korean leader is potentially gravely ill, and then we had the news that President Trump is going to follow through with what so many of us have been calling for for so long, but specifically now, to issue an across-the-board moratorium on new immigration at a time when Americans are locked in their home, at a time when we're going to experience 20 to 40% unemployment, at a time when we're concerned about global spreading of an epidemic. Doesn't it make sense to shut it all off? It's really one of the best pieces of news we've heard in recent days with every single, really every single policy outcome so far from this epidemic has been a left-wing outcome. As Governor, uh, California Governor Gavin Newsom said, this is our opportunity to remake America in a progressive image. Well, where is the bold contrast from congressional Republicans and Republican governors doing the opposite, looking for more freedom, more sovereignty, independence from China, Fixing our supply chains, American labor on American soil, building American things, having the proper balance of security, but freeing up America, and at the same time, stopping this release of violent criminals and illegal aliens into our communities. So, so far, this looks like the first thing we're going to get. Where did this moratorium come from? Well, it came from our special guest today. You see... Mark Twain once said that in the beginning of a change, the patriot is a scarce man and a brave and hated and scorned. When his cause succeeds, the timid join him. It costs nothing to be a patriot. It's funny how everyone running for Senate and House is a Republican. Everyone's a conservative in a primary. They're all concerned about illegal immigration. They're all tough on crime. They're all concerned about deficit spending. They're all concerned about dependency. They're all concerned about regulations. But yet when it comes time to actually enact those ideals, those principles, the leverage points, the budget bills, the debt ceiling bills, the must-pass legislation, Suddenly, Nancy Pelosi gets whatever she wants, and everyone's in a witness protection program. We can't find a voice, much less a vote, for our views, for the forgotten man that doesn't want to be run by the masters of the universe. Well, there's one man who's been fighting the masters of the universe on open borders, on selling us out to China, 
on selling us out to the criminal industrial complex for two decades, but particularly last week, called for a full immigration moratorium. And that is Jeff Sessions. He doesn't need much of an introduction to you guys, former senator from Alabama, attorney general, and now he's running again for that same Senate seat in Alabama, which is currently occupied by a very liberal Democrat, Doug Jones. There is a runoff between him and Mr. Tuberville, the other Republican candidate uh, that has been delayed until July 15th. And I figured on a day like today, where we're actually finally celebrating good news, I know I'm always considered the Grim Reaper, uh, the, the bearer of, uh, of uh, ill tidings, but this is a great piece of news, but I want you to hear from the man that called for this last week. With no further ado, it's an honor to bring back to the Conservative Review Podcast, former Senator Jeff Sessions. Hey, Mr. Sessions, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you for those um, good remarks. And thank you for your leadership. You're one of the smartest, most tenacious, uh, effective advocates for the rule of law uh, in America and the constitutional order. So it's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, I do believe very strongly that immigration should serve the national interest. And you may remember when I became chairman of the Immigration Subcommittee and Judiciary, I changed the name. I made it Immigration and the National Interest, because I think we need to get that straight first and foremost. So a great nation can have an immigration policy. We can bring in people every year. Uh, We bring in 1.1 million a year now to permanent legal residents every year. But I think uh, a great nation also should adjust its immigration flow whenever it becomes smart for them to do so and beneficial to the people of the country. And right now, we just added last Wednesday, five million more people to the unemployment rolls. That's the day I announced that we should stop bringing in more foreign workers from abroad to take the very, very, very few jobs that exist. And it's our job as a nation to make sure that our people have first shots at those jobs. Uh, That will get them off welfare, get them into a productive world. Uh, Self-esteem will go up and they'll pay taxes and rather, rather than bring in, take money from the government. It's certainly the national interest for us to to do that, and I was proud that the president saw it and and was bold and boldly declared it. I don't think anybody else, any other president, would have the gumption to do that. But he's just got that kind of strength and will. And he makes a decision, he acts on it, and it's a time to celebrate, indeed. Well, not at least since uh, President Calvin Coolidge, who, who famously said, "We cast no aspersions on any people, but we have to protect." American workers, um, and he was very much a pro-business president as well. And I think we are at 1920, a hundred times over. I, I'd be remiss if I don't bring this out. I wrote, I wrote this in my book, and I got it from you. Uh, this might have been seven years ago, six, seven years ago. You m- might remember it. And I thought, to me, this was even before this whole crisis, which you know, with 40 percent unemployment, it's a no-brainer. But even before this, you made the following point that even with the Great Wave from 1880 to 1920. Still, because of the shutoff, it created a dynamic in which on net the foreign-born population in the country went down so that by 1970, 90 years after the beginning of that wave, the immigration population had only increased by 44% in raw numbers, while the native-born population increased by 306%. Fast forward to this super-duper great wave that 
has no end in sight. And by 2060, again, 90 years after the 1970 benchmark, the immigrant population is projected to grow by 715%, while the native-born population is just one-tenth of that growth at 77%. I felt that was astounding when you put that out seven years ago. That is a, a very, very significant thing. And we do need to recognize that we will soon have the largest percentage of the American population non-native born in our history. You know, it reached a peak in the early 1900s, as you mentioned, during the first great wave of immigration. Uh, they, we constricted that. The middle class did grow and prosper. We ended up in the 1950s with probably one of the glorious times for the average American working person. And so that's, that's a thing we need to think about. Our immigration should serve our national interests. It should advance American values as well as just GDP. And as you know, Daniel, I think you've written about it. It's not so much just the GDP that goes up with a million more people. It's that per capita GDP has gone down as a result of this massive flow of labor that pulls down wages. If you bring in too many workers, the value of labor falls, just like you bring in too much cotton, the price of cotton, bring in too much oil, the price of oil falls. So this is the kind of thing that we need to be aware of as a rational, smart nation that's protecting its own people. So here's what I don't understand. Back in the day, everyone, as you call them, the masters of the universe, get together, the business interests, and they say, you don't understand. Americans don't want manual labor jobs. We need H-2 visas. Well, you know what? They don't want uh, white-collar jobs either. We need H-1 visas. We need OPT. We need more foreign students. Over a million of them, uh, almost 400,000 from China, which we'll talk about, presents poses a whole litany of problems. And then you would think, even if you subscribe to that thought generally, now with a nuclear winter on our economy, something that might overshadow the Great Depression, you would think everyone would agree it makes no sense to say Americans wouldn't want to do the, these jobs. But yet I'm hearing very few Republicans provide that bold contrast as Democrats continue to call for more immigration and more even illegal immigration as well. Well, that is, this is so true. Look, what, what do the American people want? And sometimes it's hard to have this, but they want a secure job. They don't want to work three months and then be laid off. They'd like to have a health care benefit uh, and a retirement plan. Those are basic things that people would like to have. And we need to create this. And one way to not provide that is to keep bringing in people from abroad who don't demand that. Then you don't have to pay. It's just an unhealthy thing for the average American. And America is not a healthy nation if we've got a large percentage of our people not working in a, in a, in a way that provides them basic uh economic strength to live as a decent family. That, that's just a, not a healthy country. And so for 20 years, we ended up with wages falling increases less than inflation. Only under President Trump now, we had modest increases in wages above inflation. That's progress. And so if you keep handling, bringing in more workers than we've got jobs for, then we got a problem. Right now, we don't have jobs. We have zero jobs. It's like the all the price is below zero. We just added five million unemployed, making 22 million. And we've got college graduates. Where are they going to get a job? 
We still going to bring in people from abroad. My opponent uh, here in Alabama uh, said there are 400,000 Indians that would like to come here from India and that we should bring them in. Uh, well, where are they going to work? Whose jobs are they going to take? This is fundamental uh, to uh, a deep concern for the legitimate interest of our own citizens. So that that's the interesting thing. All these candidates run for office saying, oh, I'm an outsider. I've heard this my entire career. And then the minute they're in there, or sometimes even before, they're drinking out of the trough of the masters of the universe, all the global elites, all the business interests that want a constant flow of labor. Now, we spoke a lot about what it does to wages, but I want to take this to the next level in the times we're living with, with the concerns from China and to a certain extent from India. Obviously, it's a more of a friendly nation, but a similar concept of sovereignty. So you were laughed at for years when you warned about this, that we're selling out our people to China. So it's not just the wages. The fact that we have this pipeline of hundreds of thousands of foreign students and then that flows into the workers and the jobs. What we do is we wind up giving our talent pool over to other countries, most notably China. And then that builds up the talent for them to go and outsource or American companies to outsource the jobs there. And then now everyone's scratching their head thing. Oh, we don't build anything. What's going on here? But what shocks me is there appears to be no prospective plan from either party to go and restore our sovereignty. And that ties back to foreign visas to move away from our dependency on China to move away from the problems we have with the uh, counterintelligence, espionage, trade theft. I mean, Senators Portman and Carper put together a bipartisan report last November from the Homeland Security Subcommittee saying that basically they have the Thousand Talents program in China. They're picking us dry even at our own Department of Energy labs. We have Chinese nationals working there. They're not all spies, but a lot of them are. We have no way of vetting them, yet we bring in 80,000 on green cards a year. We bring in 360,000 or so foreign students. What is your plan to finally turn this around? And isn't this a cathartic moment where we need to start doing this not just temporarily, but in the long run, uh, looking to shut off these visas from China. Well, you're right. Uh, Look, one writer has said we needed a Sputnik moment to wake up the American people to the threat that we heard about, but is not registered in any effective political way. That is a fact, I believe. So this uh, deal with the virus, this pandemic, I believe is our Sputnik moment. We've seen the nature of the Chinese communist atheistic regime. They do not tell the truth. They lie to their own people. They lie to the world. They're not a trustworthy, reliable partner. They have a long-term plan to be the predominant power in the world and to advance their ideology, which is uh, totalitarian communism, is not a constitutional republic. It's just not. And so we need to understand this threat. And first thing we need to do is protect our own manufacturing base. We've got to protect our technology from theft. We've got to protect our personal privacy. Chinese hackers have been penetrating our systems. They've obtained our Office of Personnel Management, the government employees, and all their personal backgrounds. Uh, What is it? Equifax. They've stolen over a million documents relating to the privacy rights of American citizens they now possess. Uh, They've 
stolen technology in Monsanto and others. 5G is now being advanced by Huawei. This is a big deal, a very, very, very big deal. Huawei, this Chinese company, cannot, cannot, cannot provide our fifth generation high speed internet. It provides them far too much access to everything that goes on in the democratic world. Uh, and our European allies are soft on it. Australia's rock solid. President Trump is rock solid. But uh, we need to fight that battle, and we do not need that to happen. So these are the kind of things that you, you mentioned. What do we do to protect ourselves? China represents, look, I think we can, we can uh, exist with China. But if we don't take off the rose-colored glasses, the danger increases. If we let them cheat, steal, and advance themselves improperly, then that creates anger and hostility, could result in bad things in the future. The better policy is right now to say we're going to be on a level playing field. You, if you sell to our markets, you're going to have to let us sell to your markets. If we're going to buy your products, you've got to buy our products. If you're going to operate with us reasonably, you can't steal our technology. You can't support companies so that they can bankrupt an American manufacturing plant, lay off American workers, and take those workers to China. You've got, you can't continue this massive profits, this massive trade surplus with the United States uh, that is fueling really the financial basis for their military surge that's undergoing right now in China. So we're in a different world. We're in a very competitive world with China. But when you take the United States economy, the, the rest of Canada and the rest of the European economy, we are bigger and stronger and will be for many, many years. Uh, but right now they're on path to pass the United States as the biggest economy in the world. But we're not defeated. We have every way to uh, defend American interests. My plan, I call it betting on America. We're going to win this battle if we wake up. We're going to win it if we defend our interests in a legitimate way. And we've got to tell China, if you're going to play in the big leagues, you've got to be a responsible nation. And when you know that there's a virus, a pandemic possible in your country, you've got to tell the world immediately and honestly, like any other legitimate, decent country would do. You can't cover it up and then lie like they're doing right now. To me, what I find shocking about the last thing you said, certainly they covered it up, but from our governmental standpoint, it shocks me that there is no legislation in either house at this point to deal with the impetus of how this got into the country to at the next the next time this happens at the first sign of a virus germinating in China or wherever else that we have an automatic shutoff from that country now the president has discretionary authority to do so but to mandate it and to me not dealing with that is like the equivalent of not banning box cutters after 911 but yet there's no discussion of the fact that I mean, maybe we didn't know about it in November, but Chinese dissidents were warning on open source social media at great risk in mid-January, even early January. And even when the president did it, Nancy Pelosi was saying it was racist to shut it off. So don't we need a long-term plan to ensure that there's a mandatory shutoff, aside from the general immigration shutoff, but a shutoff of travel from these source countries? 
Well, that's a, a good uh, idea, really, because uh, it's so hard for presidents to do that. Most of them won't have the gumption to do it like President Trump. Uh, so having the backup of a legal requirement yep. makes it easier for them to say to China, I'm sorry, uh, we can't do this because the law requires me. You know, China is... Um, uh, got to be held to account, and so does the WHO, the World Health Organization. What they did here is pretty stunning, uh, and it's really unacceptable. Uh, they've got to realize that if they're going to be a responsible nation, they're going to have to behave like one and and not be responsible for the spreading of this pandemic. Uh, my plan and uh, calls on us to crack down on China in a lot of ways. When I was attorney general, uh, we established the China Initiative there. I learned that there are almost no prosecutions of Chinese entities in the United States, and our intelligence and FBI agents were telling me there were a lot of problems. So I said, that's not going to happen. We started the China Initiative. Now there are 50 ongoing cases with a thousand investigations in every corner of America about cheating and fraud and abuse that's going on. And we need to Every one of them, not one time can we act, acquiesce into you cheating us. That day is over. We need to make that crystal clear. If you're going to trade with the United States, you're going to have to follow the law and, and be responsible. It's funny. A lot of people forget, you know, they see these subtle changes or maybe don't even notice them. But you were attorney general in 2017, 2018. I actually, until you mentioned that, never put two and two together because recently, almost every day now, I see on U.S. attorneys' websites, press releases about these indictments for the trade theft and espionage. And I never used to see that. So I guess now we know where that came from. Um, we doubled the budget, I believe, more than doubled the budget for this thing. And uh, the agents uh, had felt really suppressed. We unleashed them. I said, you are unleashed. When you have a case involving a China entity, don't you worry about it. You go after it. You do it like you should do it. And we cannot allow them to uh, continue this activity. So there are whole lots of things in a thousand different ways. We can tighten up some of the advantages they've been achieving and their trade advantages. They subsidize their own companies. Uh, we don't subsidize the American company. Pretty soon the American factory closes. And next thing you know, they are now supplying the world's health care benefits, the drugs or their uh, medical supplies. We need to end that. That cannot continue. Shouldn't another part of this equation be a massive effort at deregulation? That part of the thing is, so, you know, we bring in all the foreign labor, it trains their talent, they bring it overseas, we sell ourselves out to China, but then also we kick ourselves in the pants at the same time and have draconian regulations, whether it's environmental labor, you know, uh, transportation over and beyond what prudence would call. So shouldn't now be a good opportunity as we have a reset on every aspect of our economy? It seems like both parties in Congress, all they, they're focusing on is just printing more money and throwing money at a problem, but not looking at substantive policy changes. And one of them seems to be regulation. Absolutely. You know, the, when, when the president was campaigning and I was traveling around the country advocating for his election, uh, I talked to a lot of business people and they would say almost as important as a tax cut, maybe as important as regulation relief. 
we are just being overwhelmed by massive regulations that make no sense, create no benefit, but add to the cost of our product. Therefore, we can't compete with some foreign country, with low-wage country. But if we didn't have that, we could. And so we, there's no doubt under the Trump administration, there's been a massive uh, progress toward deregulation. There still remains too many regulations. A lot of them are state and even cities, you know, about how to regulate beauticians and uh, all kinds of little businesses are, are impacted uh, even at the lowest level of regulation. So, yes, a continual nationwide effort to reduce and eliminate all unnecessary regulations will make us far better able to compete in the world marketplace, creating more jobs in America. So I know we're running out of time here, but I'd be remiss not to broach this with you um, because this is just so much what you've been warning about, um, and especially when you were attorney general as well. Uh, For so many years, for so many years, 120, 130 years, the court's said that, you know, this Galvin v. Press policies pertaining to the entry of aliens and their right to remain here are peculiar, per, peculiarly uh, concerned with the political conduct of government. The formulation of these policies is entrusted exclusively to Congress, has become as firmly embedded in the legislative and judicial tissues of our body politic as any aspect of our government. And, and there's, there's tons of cases like that, and it's, it's settled law to, till today. Yet the last number of years, we are seeing these unelected judges completely go to the other end of the spectrum, sack um, immigration policy, ignore IRA-IRA for 1996. Many cases, they're not even permitted to review the cases. And there's this prevailing understanding among your former colleagues, whether they're in the executive branch, whether they're in the legislative branch, that somehow we don't have three co-equal branches of government, that somehow the judicial branch, which is unelected and should be the weakest, as Hamilton and Madison said, somehow stands atop the food chain, that they could determine border national crisis policies um, without any pushback. And just to give a current example, we're seeing with coronavirus Judge Yesterday, a California judge said ICE has to review release of anyone they call high risk and anyone over the age of 55. Now, not release and repatriate, which is what should be happening, but to be released in our communities. They're also mandating the release of domestic criminals where the Democrat governors aren't doing it on their own. What is going on here and what do you think as a senator you can do to check this behavior? Well, boy, you're just exactly right. Uh, The courts are way out of line, way out of line. I saw that as attorney general. I was uh, stunned at some of the things that uh, were required of our ICE officers and our Border Patrol officers. Why? Not because the law said it, but because some judge said it. And you're right. uh, These nationwide injunctions that stop enforcement of our policies to not reward law enforcement grants, to a city who refuses and rejects ICE and its ability to deport criminals from their own community, give me a break. So we decided if you're not cooperating with us, you don't deserve federal law enforcement grants, as the law said, but yet we got enjoined. You get a single judge on an island in the Pacific, issues an order, one out of 600 federal district judges issues a nationwide injunction that stops the entire president of the United States. You know, they did that on the travel ban, the first travel 
order that President Trump issued right after he became president. Um, people don't know, we had half a dozen district judges bar that nationwide. We took an emergency appeal, we got it to the Supreme Court when I was Attorney General, and we won. 90-something percent of that presidential order is now in effect. I'm not sure most people know, but it's hard to get an emergency appeal to the Supreme Court. Often these lower judges, their orders stick, and it goes for years before you can get it reversed. So I have spoken against that. At least two judges on the Supreme Court have picked up on my remarks and said they questioned this one judge out of 600 district judges setting the policy. The Constitution proposes that the executive branch be head in one unified executive, the elected president. It's his duty to execute the executive branch and to enforce the laws. And we've got these judges that think they're oversight committee. They think they're just like a congressional oversight committee. They bring in the presidents and his underlings and they make them explain why they did this and what are the policy reasons when it's not their duty to examine yep. policy. The policy is decided by Congress and the president. Give me a break. So um, I do think the judges that President Trump is appointing are far, far better, and they're far less likely to do so. Sure. And, and just, uh, Justice Court Gorsuch, for example, has criticized nationwide injunctions uh, firmly and clearly, and so has Justice Thomas. And so that's a kind of, you can we can make a lot of progress if we continue to appoint judges who know the role of a judge is to serve under the Constitution and the laws of the United States. They're not above them, they're under them. And their duty is to follow what the law says, not make it. Well, one of the things that I find shocking to juxtapose now is, you know, I've, I've been told forever that the courts are God. They could do whatever they want, no matter the consequences. We had a public health crisis um, last year at the border, 21,000 illegal aliens taken to hospitals at the border, and these aren't Columbia Presbyterian in New York City, it's Del Rio and Yuma, small cities, uh, 260,000 uh, agent men hours spent at hospitals. And yet, no one ever said, look, this is a public health crisis, this is dealing with international affairs, the courts have already said that, there's no way a court can get involved, we're not going to sit and do this nonsense. Yet, when it comes to American citizens now, when you're dealing with real foundational rights, first, fifth, fourteenth uh, amendment, I mean, right to assemble, right to go to church, uh, re restriction of movement. I mean, th these governors uh, sued President Trump for having a travel ban from Iran when we're practically at war with them. Yet they now have a the governor of Michigan has a travel ban outside your home to a family member's home down the down the block. And suddenly now the courts are silent. Suddenly there's no, hey, Governor Whitmer, show me your work. Show me your papers. Show me what your advisor said. Show me, you know, all, all what you dealt with, the disclosure. I find that juxtaposition amazing. Could you speak a little bit towards your feeling as a former attorney general, the role of the federal government in enforcing the 14th Amendment, not the BS version, but the hardcore natural rights against state governors that are out of control? Well, it is a dangerous thing. Uh, we had a circumstance, my wife and I listened on the radio, on the internet, to um, a pastor in Mississippi whose parishioners came up in their automobiles and he preached to them, stood outside the church. They stayed in their cars and the police came and wanted to shut them down and fine them. 
Uh, and that, that's just a totally unjustified constriction of the fundamental First Amendment right that every American has to freely exercise their religion. There's no countervailing health need to have shut that down. So we do have all kinds of examples, like you just mentioned, of circumstances that go beyond what's rational uh, um, because of the nature, I guess, of bureaucratic power people. You know, the bureaucracy can just be vicious at times, and it has to be curtailed by the great protections in the ultimate guardian of our freedom, the Constitution of the United States. Uh, I would just say one more thing. Uh, I, you, you understand it. We briefly mentioned it. There was a host of different things that I saw as attorney general where the judiciary sets itself up to be some sort of oversight branch. And whenever something politically incorrect, they think, or something that's not liberal enough occurs, they have a right to call in the executive branch, bring in their assistants, make them tell what discussions they had in private with their own lawyers were about this, and, and then they decide whether it's justified or not. That is not what this country is set up to do. The executive branch and the legislative branch control the policy, not the courts. And all the more so, we see all the time presidents from both Democrat and Republican administrations, whenever a congressional committee controlled by the opposing party wants to subpoena members of the executive branch, often they'll say, look, you know, we're a separate branch of government. Uh, you don't rule over us. The people will ultimately decide. This happens all the time. Both parties do it. And it's not controversial. Why is it that what all the founders agreed should be comparatively at best equal, but really um, somewhat weaker just because they're unelected. You can't make them stronger. The judiciary, whatever they want to say, irrespective of the rules of standing, irrespective of their own case law precedent, irrespective of, of statute, irrespective of Congress's plenary authority over both immigration and the scope and jurisdiction of of the judiciary itself and where they could limit their jurisdiction as they did in IRA. IRA. They're like, screw that. I'm going to hear the case anyway. Why is there no impetus from either branch to push back against that? And do you think this is something you would like to get into in your second, potentially a second stint in the Senate? I'd, absolutely. We have got to restore the proper balance between the um, powers that be. That is correct. And uh, we can do it. Congress does have powers. It can withdraw jurisdiction. It can pass more clear legislation. Sometimes they leave it vague and courts jump in full-fledged. But I will say this, I don't believe the the entire judicial system uh, is broken and that every judge is that way. Uh, but we have a growing tendency of judges to overreach their power, to not feel they are bound by the plain meaning of the words of a statute or the Constitution, that they can sort of update it to make it say what they want it to say today. And that is a dangerous trend. It's part of what the, uh, the left has always advocated. They want the courts to do for them, Daniel, what they can't win at the ballot box. And once they get the court to say the Constitution requires this, 
then you all, then you have to have a constitutional amendment to overturn it. Uh, so this is a kind of dangerous trends that have been unhealthy. It's been a big deal in the elections. Uh, President Trump gained dramatically by promising to appoint judges who show restraint and, and not make law, but follow the law. And he's honoring that by appointing good judges that will do that. So this election will be important for the judiciary. Uh, we continue the left wing progressive activist trends of the judiciary, this will be a disaster to American separation of powers and constitutional rights. Well, well, one last thing, and I know you, your, your staff will breathe down me. I've, t- I've taken too much of your time here, but this has been so engaging. Um, one of the things I'm seeing a lot is just the the, the perverse priorities from, from members of Congress, really, again, in both parties, as it relates to immigration. It looks like the president's taking care of a future flow now. We're finally treating our border as a border. It shouldn't have taken coronavirus to do it, but I'm thankful that we're finally doing it, that if you're here illegally, you know, you're here illegally. <laughs> like, you're here illegally. You have no right to be here, and we turn you around, and you go back. There's no process. There's no due process. There's only due process if we want to criminally convict you, but if we want to enforce our sovereignty, again, 130 years of the most uninterrupted case law, you have no rights. My concern is with interior enforcement. There's a lot of legislation that Democrats are pushing to abolish interior enforcement, abolish ICE. You have states and localities are doing it on their own with the sanctuary policies. Um, And you just mentioned things that they can't accomplish at the ballot box. If they were to pass those, they would never pass those bills. And if they would, they would lose 300 seats. So what they're doing is the get it, they're getting the courts to essentially abolish ICE. They're not abolishing the personnel, but they're abolishing their purview. And what we find is if you just look at what is in ICE's crosshairs, 3.2 million in their undetained docket, primarily criminal aliens, about at least 80%, have also committed other crimes. And they remain in the country indefinitely. And each one, whether I've... I've dealt with cases of gang members, sex offenders, each one could litigate their case forever in the immigration courts. And then in the Article Three courts, you can't litigate your way out of an invasion. And what I don't understand is how did we move away from our tradition, you know, until recent decades of if you're here, you have no affirmative right to be here illegally. And if we don't want you here, unless we're trying to criminally convict you, we could repatriate you like any sovereign nation does. I'm just very concerned with just 5,500 deportation officers, and there's 3.2 million known criminal aliens. We can't even get rid of all the gang members we know. Um, Look, you're, you're touching on something very fundamental. The next battle is going to be about interior enforcement. It cannot be that somebody who breaks across our border, gets into the country illegally, is therefore here permanently, and sooner or later is gonna be made a citizen of the United States. I mean, that's so fundamentally ridiculous that it just shouldn't be discussed, but yet that's basically the mindset that appears that the masters of the universe and some of our judiciary seems to think. You just can't deport them. They, they, if. When you come here unlawfully, you are subject to deportation, period. You don't have to commit another crime in the United States. You're just here unlawfully. And if you aren't willing to enforce that law, uh, then you're creating a magnet for more people to come 
uh, unlawfully to burrow in and hope that one day they'll either get false documents or they'll be able to be made a citizen under some new amnesty bill. That's the deal that's been happening. That's why uh, Senator Grassley, who was there when President Reagan did the 1986 bill uh, that he said was one of his worst mistakes, Senator Grassley said, we did. We learned something. We gave amnesty and we had a promise of enforcement, but, but the enforcement never occurred. That's exactly what's about to happen now. I fought that three different times. One time they yeah. spent $1.5 billion, the, the corporate interest and the left-wing interest to pass that amnesty bill, and we still were able to stop it by the skin of our teeth. But that whole thing is, if their talking points were okay, uh, Daniel, you would think I'm for that bill, but it was not okay. You would get guaranteed amnesty. A plan would put you on a guaranteed path to citizenship, but there would be no guarantee we'd ever have enforcement. So we have to prove that we can have enforcement first. Now, that's the fundamental uh, about how this deal has to be worked. So that's what I find shocking about a lot of your former colleagues. They might be colleagues again pending this election where it's like it's like Frankenstein. It keeps coming back, and it's it's nostalgia with hearing you talk about that. You were actually the one who got me into this business. It was 2006, 2007, um, those immigration fights. I remember your floor speeches, and then certainly in 2013 with the Gang of Eight, your office was a one-office think tank producing information, not just being a vote but a voice that has really been – there's been a void since you've left, and that's what's what's very concerning, that we're not seeing this counterpressure, but what we are seeing is the same play, the same running play up the middle of the field where they're like – we there's no urgency to deal with sanctuary cities. I'm not seeing any legislation. You know, We had, according to ICE, 2,500 homicide charges among one year's batch in FY 2019 of detainers. To, to, to put that in perspective, according to the FBI, we only arrest about 9,000 people a year for homicide. That's a tremendous fraction there of, of likely murders committed by illegal aliens that are completely preventable. They're harbored by California. They're harbored by New York. And yet, rather than deal with that, there is a clamor. And you know this is going to come any day to give an ag amnesty to supposed uh, you know, illegal alien agricultural workers, as well as DACA. They're obsessed with it. I mean, nothing else could we get them to act on. There's no, you know, to end the shutdown and the tyranny of Democrat governors locking us in our homes, you know, hold hearings about the right science about coronavirus. No, nothing. But DACA, they just, they, they can't control themselves. Could you commit to this audience that you will be that same voice to counter that, that you were in 06, 07, and 2013? Well, I'm telling my people in Alabama, I'm the same Jeff Sessions that was in the Senate before. They fought for your values, I believe America's values, uh, tenaciously and did so. And I do believe, actually, Daniel, uh, that I have a unique experience, background, and understanding to be more effective than somebody that's completely new to the system. Well, I'm an outsider. I don't have any problem. Well, if I had sold out and become part of the masters of the universe or or some establishment or special interest crowd had taken me over, then you don't want me back. Maybe an outsider is better. 
But if you've got a proven person who understands the great issues of our time, is looking uh, and believes that at this point in history, uh, I could make a difference, like you said, in uniting and advancing a coherent view to fix the immigration law. we got a president who's supportive, so we need to be able to get this thing done now. And I'm afraid if we don't get it done in the next couple of years, and it's not easy, and it's not going to be one speech and one vote. It's going to be a long battle. But if we do it right— and with the president's support, I think we can make huge progress in ending illegality. And then we need to look to the future flow. And the president's right about that. And we need a skill-based uh, system more than a family-based system that brings in people that we are confident, that understand the American system, and that can flourish in it. And not going to, you know, struggle and be on welfare and not be able to take care of their families. We need the kind of people that will flourish in our system that we do admit. And the country has every right to reduce this one plus one million plus numbers if we think it's not healthy for the country right now. You you should you know the country ought to protect its own interests. So anyway, uh, those are things that. You understand the criminal justice issue far better than most of our commentators. I've watched your, with great interest your insights into crime and punishment. And I just got to tell you, uh, if you don't have a sustained, effective enforcement, it's not the law that's on the books in the United States. If you're in Guatemala, you call by cell phone to somebody you know, know in the United States, and they tell you whether you can get in or not. And if they tell you all you got to do is get in, turn yourself over to the to the law enforcement officers, they'll release you on bail and ask you to come back and you can go to Houston or Los Angeles and nobody's ever going to come look for you again. Then that's the law. That becomes what they understand the law. And that's why we have this large flow. Once you say it's not going to happen anymore, you are going to get caught. You're going to have wasted your money. You're going to be sent back to Honduras. Uh, then people will stop coming. That, that's one of the big things that we've got to accomplish. And a lot of people don't understand. We can't, we can't, we can't make America become like the countries from which they're coming from. I mean, it serves no purpose. Look, Senator, I know we're out of time. I could go on forever. I really hope I could bring you back. There's so many more law and order issues I'd love to get your opinion on. Again, typical candidates running. It's the trite talking points. You speak with so much experience of actually having shown results. Thanks so much. Uh, July 15th primary. Good luck, and we'll speak to you later, all right? Thank you. Take care. Well, there you have it, folks. Um, I took twice the amount of time that I told his staff, so I hope they're not upset with me. But I just felt, again, it was a very important point. I mean, he's running against a um, former big football coach there, Tommy Tuberville, and it's like a football coach. I'm an outsider. You guys know we've seen this all the time. They're all outsiders before they're insiders, or most of them are. And if the guy is talking about bringing in more guest workers even now, you know, you can imagine when he gets in there and gets in with the establishment, he ain't going to be Jeff Sessions. No one is. Um, this is someone, it's very clear. I mean, again, I obviously will want to talk about the here and now. Maybe a future date will go back to the Mueller stuff and his time as attorney general. But even if you're upset with him over that, over the rec recusal, Ask yourself this, as someone who is coming to the Senate, the job he will do, not will, will he be better than Tommy Tuberville? But more than that, 
he will likely be the only voice of any of the 100 senators, not just the best choice in Alabama for this. I want you guys to listen to this clip from him in 2007 on the Senate floor fighting against um, the amnesty bill. Listen to this right now. I hope today that people begin to see that a small group of senators who meet in secret and plot out a bill that if printed in actual bill language would be a thousand pages, don't have the power to say we can't have amendments and we can't change it. And if you do get an amendment up, we're all going to stick together and vote it down because it didn't comply with our little compromise. Well, the masters of the universe are playing a, a tough game here. Now, again, this was the immigration bill, but you could apply this to everything. This is what's happening with all the coronavirus legislation. They just get in the back room. They treat the most earth-shattering legislation that will determine the future of our history, trillions of dollars worth of spending, policy changes we can't even imagine, and they vote on them like they're post office naming bills. Within three hours that they're concocted behind closed doors, no amendments, no input, no debate, and he called them out on it. This is 13 years ago he said that. We need that voice right now, not just on immigration, but on all these bills. People forget Senator Sessions was also um, the budget committee chairman. People know more about his work on the judiciary, crime, immigration, and he really fought hard on budget, called out budget point of orders. Look, I mean, you don't really have people like this running for office. You just don't, um, especially, you know, we, we don't like career politicians, but there's nothing quite like the one in a thousand that actually was in there and never, ever changed and was the canary in the coal mine on sovereignty, on immigration, on guest workers, on labor, on China. Look, it speaks for itself. I mean, you know, you guys know where to go. It's a July 15th primary. Obviously, he's not going to get any help from the industries, from anyone. Um, and look, the president would be wise to look very deeply in his soul and ask himself, does personal vendettas at this point matter more than the future of every single thing he campaigned on when he needs a voice in the Senate that will actually push every minute of every day for what he so emphatically campaigned on? Especially when this man, let's never forget, was the first and only U.S. Senator to endorse Donald Trump in the primary. So there we go, folks. There's a lot more going on. They're passing this another dumb $500 billion spending bill without any debate, without dealing with any of the issues we just, we just spoke about, without dealing with any of the tyranny, the impetus for the shutdown. This is why we need better people. We need better people running. We need better people getting elected. We need a new plan. It's going to be a busy week. Again, watch this on YouTube. Um, hopefully, we'll make this a more regular occurrence. Uh, but for now, generally, we're going to be more audio. Also, again, get your Blaze TV subscription. Promo code Daniel. Till tomorrow, God bless you all. And keep the lamp of liberty burning. Mm -hmm.